And the purpose of this episode and the other the episodes to come to follow is to answer questions that you may have concerning life, concerning doctrine. And we believe the Bible contains answers for all of us by which we can live by and have faith in. And so let's go ahead and begin with a question from one of our viewers. Uh, in the prophecy, the small remnant will be their own sheepfold. This is what we discussed in our last uh, worship service. Actually, when we dedicated ourselves to Yahuwah God, right? We talked about the prophecy in Jeremiah about the sheep, uh, about the sheepfold. Then Yahuwah promises that the flock will be given judges and shepherds who will tend the flock. There's also a promise that it will increase in number, which could mean the small remnant will not remain small. With all these happening, Paul, uh, please let us know uh, what can we expect and how can we help as well. And so these are the questions that follow after that brief introduction. Some of us would like to understand and know. This is not just my questions, but a few are asking. Number one, how would you tend the flock with so many things to do for the work of Yahuwah? It's a good question because if the flock gets larger, bigger, we do need to make sure that the flock is properly cared for. So how do we do that? Well, how was the first century kahal or first century assembly cared for? The book of 1 Peter 5, 1 to 3, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So how are we to take care of a growing flock? How are we to tend to the people of God in these last days? The same way that the early followers of Yahusha did it. How did they do so? They had elders who would do the work of overseeing the flock under their care. And how must they carry out the work of taking care of the flock? In verse 3, it says, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. You see, the elders who are to take care of the flock, they themselves are sheep who belong to Yahushua. Yahushua is the chief shepherd. There are those who are being gifted to take care of the people who belong to Yahuwah and to Yahushua. This is why uh, to prepare for the impending growth of the kahal or the assembly, there are elders that are being groomed, being prepared to take care of the flock. This is why we have a council of elders at the moment. There are several of our brothers who are studying the scriptures together with us being prepared to do this kind of work, to oversee and shepherd the flock as elders inside the assembly of Yahushua. Now, because we are anticipating also the growth of the kahal, it is our pleasure to announce to all of you that we are looking for students for the year that is to come because we're going to start a new year of studies for the ministry, and there perhaps maybe those who are 18 years and above, you have to be male, who want to become an elder, an overseer, who will oversee the sheep who belong to Yahusha HaMashiach. However, if you want to apply, because classes begin in January, if you want to apply, 
uh, to this school of ministry, we advise you to make sure that you meet the following requirements. The book of Titus 1, 5 to 8, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who was self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So if you fit this criteria, the qualification set forth by the apostles concerning qualified elders, then we urge you to write to us at info at assemblyofyahusha.org if you are interested in becoming a student of the ministry. And we're going to prepare you uh, by teaching you Bible history, a lesson preparation, biblical application, counseling and coaching skills that you can use to be able to take care properly those who have been entrusted to your care. However, let us keep in mind, we have to maintain that standard given to us by the apostles. We need to be blameless. Does it mean one has to be perfect? No, because none of us are perfect. However, we do need to be blameless. What does that mean? It means there's no visible or obvious or blatant sin that uh, this person is living by. In other words, we must be able to follow a holy and disciplined life and be able to follow the teachings there. So this is in preparation for the future. We want to make sure that we properly groom people so that we can appoint them to be an elder in every town. However, the, the, in, when it says uh, appoint an elder in every town because of our given situation, it's going to be a virtual place, right? Not an actual place. Nevertheless, the work remains the same. It is to feed the words of God to our brothers and sisters. Let's go to the next question. Would there be a proper channel to reach brethren's concerns? Yes, we've already shown you the proper channel. We have uh, the Zoom. We have also email. We also have personal and private communications. Number three, other than the BQA, Bible Question and Answer, and BHP, and W, and Worship Service, and Doctrina, these are the core beliefs. What other platforms are we going to use to reach uh, each other and be together during this pandemic? At the moment, we have this platform, Facebook, Zoom, and that is really more than enough. Um, if there are other platforms by which we can, that we can use to enhance what we are doing, we will explore those possibilities. Uh, number four, who would be the judges? Those who are being trained as overseers or elders who will oversee the people of God. Remember, the work of a judge is to be able to settle disputes using the word of God as the standard to determine what is right and what is wrong. Number five. How do we know if we are a part of the assembly of Yahusha already? Is there a confirmation email that will say we are accepted as members or not? Yes. If you registered, you should have already received on a confirmation email, unless, of course, there was a problem 
in the registration. Number six, how can how would we from the Far East attend Yahushua's Passover? We're working on that. I'm sure Yahuwah God will bless us with wisdom so that all of us can celebrate together Yahushua's uh, Passover. Number seven, if I'm gone missing, will someone look for me? And how do we know if one brethren is missing? This is something that the Council of Elders will be uh, talking about how we can make sure that everyone is probably cared for and accounted for. Remember, we just started the assembly or the kahal. And so basically it's a work in progress. We're going to set up uh, ways by which we can make sure everyone is properly cared for. Okay. All right. Let's go to the next series of questions. Good evening, Paul. I have a few questions here. Number one, kailangan po bang mabautismohan ulit? Ang mga kaanib sa Assembly of Yahusha upang masunod ang utos na pagbabautismo sa pangalan ni Yahuwa at ni Yahusha kahit sila ay nabautismohan na sa INC. INC stands for Iglesia ni Cristo, our former religious affiliation. And so let's translate that in English. Do members of the Assembly of Yahusha need to be baptized again in order to comply with the command to receive baptism in the name of Yahuwa and Yahusha even though the have already received baptism in the Iglesia de Cristo. What do you think the answer is? It is a complex question, so we need to really look into it. When Yahushua was here on earth, what did he instruct his disciples to do concerning baptism? Matthew 28, 18 and 20, And Yahushua came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit teaching them to observe all things that i have commanded you and lo i am with you always even to the end of the age amen according to yahushua hamashiach how are we to administer baptism? We all know we studied baptism before. It is through immersion, right? But the formula that was given to us by Yahushua was to baptize in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. And so this is what we're going to practice when we baptize those who finish studying the, the Bible with us. When we receive baptism in our former religious affiliation, how did we receive that baptism? Wasn't it according to this formula? In the name of the Father, name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. However, they did not use the actual name, right? It wasn't, I baptize you in the name of Yahuwah, in the name of Yahusha. It, instead, what we received was, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so the question now is, do we need to re be, be rebaptized now that we belong to the assembly of Yahusha? Before we answer that question, let's take a look at an incident here in the book of Acts, chapter 10, 45 to 48, knowing that the apostles received this instruction, right? To baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, this is what, it says, the Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter asked, can anyone object to their being baptized? 
now that they have received the Holy Spirit, just as we did. So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Yahusha Christ. Afterward, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days. What we read to you was about the baptism of Cornelius and his household. When the apostle Peter was preaching the word of God, what did he notice? The spirit was poured out on the Gentiles. In fact, they received the spirit in such a powerful way, they began to speak in tongues and praise who? God. And so because of this, instead of baptizing in the name of the Father, and the, and the Holy Spirit, they were only baptized in the name of Yahusha Christ because they had already received the Holy Spirit and began praising our Almighty God. So in this instance, baptism was in the name of Yahusha. However, in another instance, take a look at this, the book of Acts 8, 12 to 17. But now the people believe Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Yahusha Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized, and Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord, Yahushua. Then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. And so this was different from Cornelius's case, right? In Cornelius's case, they received the Spirit and then baptized in the name of Yahusha. In this case, the Bible says um, that they were baptized in the name of Yahusha, but they did not yet receive the Holy Spirit. And so what did the apostles do? Did they baptize them again? No. Instead, they laid their hands on these believers, and then they received the Holy Spirit. And so there was no need to repeat the baptism. However, what was missing was supplied by faith. And so when we were baptized, we were baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, because there's only one Father who created all things, and because there's only one Son who is the begotten one of God, there is no other names being referred to there. Nevertheless, because we have now received that name of Yahuwah and Yahusha, do we need to repeat baptism for us to be saved? This is what is written in the book of Romans 10, 9 to 13. If you confess with your mouth that Yahusha is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of Yahuwah will be saved. Is there a need for us to be baptized again? because we were not baptized in the actual name of Yahuwah and Yahusha, it's not necessary to be saved. The apostles tell us it's sufficient for us to confess with our mouth 
and with our heart that Yahusha is Lord and to call upon the name of Yahuwah as our God. And so when we profess by faith and we proclaim the name Yahusha and Yahuwah, we are covered by the power of the name Yahuwah and the name Yahusha, even if we are no longer baptized, because we were already baptized through immersion of water. You see, when we are baptized through immersion of water, where are we added to? The book of Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. And so even before the assembly of Yahushua was confirmed, we were already in the body of Yahushua. What's the purpose of the assembly? It is for us to practice our religious works and to be able to be identified officially by the name Yahushua and to proclaim the name as mandated by the prophecy. However, even before that, we were already in the body of Yahusha. We are just growing in our faith, perfecting and refining our services unto our God. Okay, let's go to question number two. Sinasabi po nung isang grupo na naituro na daw ni Ka Felix Manalo ang lahat ng ukur sa kaligtasan. Ano po ang masasabi niyo ukur dito? In English, some groups say that Brother Felix Manalo has already taught everything for our salvation. What can you say about this. I agree that Brother Felix Manalo already taught us what we need to know to be saved. Okay? It's complete what we need to know to be saved. However, it doesn't mean he has taught us everything we need to know. There's a difference there. Well, where can we find the teachings by which we can be saved? Who, Where does it really come from? The teachings that will lead to our salvation. In the book of Timothy 3, 15 and 16, and you remember that ever since you were a child, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Yahushua. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching the truth, rebuking error, correcting faults, and giving instruction for right living. Is it true that Brother Felix Monalo already taught everything for our salvation? Yes, because what he taught comes from what book? The Holy Scriptures. The scriptures is what gives us wisdom that leads to salvation. Through who? Faith in Yahusha, the Christ. Did he teach that? Did he teach to us from scriptures what we need to do to be saved? Yes. And what he taught was what was taught by Yahusha, the apostles, and was practiced even by the early Yahushans. You see, Brother Felix Manalo did not invent any new teaching. Where did he get the teachings from? The Bible. He simply proclaimed what was taught in the Bible. This is why when we think about the doctrines that was taught by Brother Felix Manalo, we need to understand he simply pointed us to the Holy Scriptures. And according to Scriptures, what do we need to do so for us to be saved? The book of Mark 16, 15 and 16. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. So did Brother Felix Manalo teach that? Yes. Did we believe that? Yes. This is why we received the preaching of the gospel. We believed and received 
baptism. However, does it mean we stop with our works? Does it mean we stop with our growing in the knowledge of God? No. Why not? Because in the book of Corinthians 13, 9 to 10, for our knowledge is fragmentary, incomplete, and imperfect. And our prophecy, our teaching is fragmentary, incomplete, and imperfect. But when the complete and perfect total comes, and incomplete and imperfect will vanish away, become antiquated, void, and superseded. Why do we need to keep growing? Why is it not enough simply to be added to the body of Yahusha through baptism? That's because we continue to progress towards what? Perfection. We need to be refined so that we can be perfect on the day when Yahusha returns. And so what do we need to understand? As we go from imperfect towards perfection, the knowledge we receive is fragmentary. Fulfillment of prophecy is fragmentary. Generation after generation, it continues to grow until it reaches final or total or complete perfection. When that happens, guess who comes back here to take us into the heavens? Yahusha himself. We're not yet there. This is why we're still moving towards perfection. However, the essence of salvation was already taught. For us to receive baptism to be added into the body of Yahusha. Now that we are in the body of Yahusha, our work must continue. It must be completed. It must be refined. This is why Brother Felix Manalo can teach what we need to do to be saved. However, it doesn't mean that he has taught us everything. And I think the one who asked this question really believes that. For example, in Isaiah 43, 5 to 6, fear not for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring back, uh, bring back, uh, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. And so when Brother Felix Fonala first preached this passage of scripture, did he teach about the gathering in the west? No, he did not teach that. Who was the one who taught that? It was Brother Iranio G. Manalo. And so, can we say that what Brother Iranio G. Manalo did was wrong? Did, can we say that brother everything that Brother Felix Y. Manalo taught is the only thing that we should accept? No, because if that's the case, then you cannot accept that this fulfillment of prophecy, when it was fulfilled in 1968, is valid. This is why, yes, he taught us everything we need to know to be saved. However, it doesn't mean the work of God is already complete. It is progressive, being refined so that we can be fully ready for the great day of our salvation. The third question is, are you willing to debate with INC or other groups like Kalowell, Kajun Samson, Benito Af, uh, Grace Affleck, and others who refuse to name Yahuwah and Yahushua? I do not want to debate. Why? Simply because in 2 Timothy 2, 23, 25, again, I say don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone, be able to teach, and be patient with difficult people. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. So am I willing to engage in debate? It really depends. I mean, if the debate 
is just foolish and ignorant arguments that only lead to fights, which is what 99.9% .9 of debates do, right? So what's the purpose? Why would we even engage in debate? Because the other party is not, they're not willing to listen anyways. So what's the point? It's only going to lead to quarrel and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel instead he must be kind to everyone. However, does it mean we're not going to answer their questions? Well, this is what Peter teaches us. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. If we're not willing to engage in debate that only escalates into quarrels and fights, does it mean we're not, we're not willing to defend what we believe? Oh, we are willing. In fact, we want to. This is why we have this program, the Bible questions and answers. This is why we open the floor to the questions that people might want to ask us. For example, Kajun Samson. We love him very much. Kalo Womanorka, Galatian Krista, whoever may be, whoever they are, if they want to ask questions about our faith and about our hope, we will answer those questions. However, we will do our best to answer those questions in a gentle and respectful way because this is the teaching of Apostle Paul the Apostle Peter, and Lord Yahusha HaMashiach. And so by doing so, if we continue to be gentle, respectful, and kind, Apostle Peter adds, if people speak against you, they'll be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. So brethren, enjoy your fellowship with Christ because that's enough for us to live a good life here on earth and especially life everlasting on the day when he returns. Okay. All right. Let's go to our next question. What does the Bible say about body tattoos? Is it allowed, Paul? How about those tattoo for cosmetic purposes? Like eyebrows, lips, not me, Paul. Lol. What does lol mean? Laugh out loud. Oh, what is it? Laugh out loud. Laugh out loud. Not me, lol. Not brother lol. It's lol. L L-O-L. -L. Okay. So body, how many here have a, has a body tattoo? Anyone here have a body tattoo? Because nowadays there's so many people who wear tattoos, right? You watch an NBA game, practically every player has tattoos all over their body. And so the question is, is, is it something that Yahuwah God wants us to have? Well, this is in the book of Leviticus 19.1-2. Yahuwah also said to Moses, give the following instructions to the entire community of Israel. You must be holy because I, Yahuwah your God, am holy. Do not cut your bodies for the dead and do not mark your skin with tattoos. I am Yahuwah. Here's an instruction from Yahuwah given to Moses to be given to the people of Israel. What makes the people of Israel special? They have been set apart by who? Yahuwah our God, that's his nation. So the nation of Israel back then represented who God was, his character, his holiness. Yahuwah God specifically said to Moses to tell the people of Israel, you have to be holy 
And the one way you can be holy or set apart and be different from the ways of the world, do not mark your skin with tattoos. I am Yahuwah. So Yahuwah forbids tattoos. Well, maybe the word tattoo there is not what we think of in terms of today's uh, understanding of the word tattoo. And so let's look at the Hebrew word in Leviticus 19 used for tattoo. And it's the, the Hebrew word ka'aka, uh, ka'aka, right? which means what? Incision, imprintment, tattoo, mark. It's funny that it uses the word incision because when you create a tattoo on your skin, it has to puncture your skin. So there's a, there are micro incisions being made under your skin to be able to create the tattoo marks. And so there seems to be the same general idea. And so during the days of Israel, God says, do not mark your skin with a tattoo. Now one might say, well, that's during the days of Israel. We belong to the Christian era. That's true as well. We no longer belong to the Old Testament. However, we need to understand when God gives a command, it shows something about his character, does it not? It tells us what he likes, what he does not like. For example, when God says you cannot eat pig, <laughs> of course, today we can eat pig. But when God's prohibition came out in the Old Testament, there was a reason. and We can see the reason why it still has value for us, doesn't it? This is why even though in the, Old, in the New Testament, we cannot really find any specific verse concerning uh, tattoos. But there is this passage from the book of Corinthians that I believe applies uh, for those who are thinking about getting a tattoo. Maybe someone here is thinking about getting a tattoo. And then this question is asked before you decide on getting a tattoo, uh, let this sink into your mind and into your heart first. The book of Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Person might say, this is my body. I can do whatever with it that I want. That's true if you were not bought by God. How many here want to be bought by God? Because the Bible says there are people who were bought by God by a high price. Who are they? The people bought by God at a high price. Those who were redeemed by the blood of Yahushua. And so what was the high price that God paid? The high price was the death of his own son, right? And so because we belong to Yahushua, what does that mean? It means we don't belong to ourselves anymore. Who do we belong to? Yahuwah. And so even our body belongs to Yahuwah, our God. Our body, in fact, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so Yahuwah's Spirit lives in us. And so when we think about our body, we must use it to honor our God. And how can we honor our God? I think one way is to ask God, Lord God, you know, during the days of Israel, it mentions you don't want any markings on our body. I think we need to kind of put that into, factor that in. Yahuwah doesn't want it in the Old Testament. Perhaps even during our time, he still doesn't want it. Because if you really want to honor God, let us make sure that what he wants, what he prefers, is what gets done with our life, including 
our body, okay? Now, it, kind of like a corollary to that question, are we allowed to have nose rings? Because nowadays the beauty, the beauty industry is skyrocketing, right? People want to be beautiful. And so things, a lot of people think that um, tattoo is art, yeah? And they want to be beautiful by tattoos. I'm not, you know, I mean, I already told you what the Bible says about tattoos. Well, how about nose rings? Are we allowed to have nose rings? The book of Genesis 24, 22. Then at last, when the camels had finished drinking, he took out a gold ring for her nose and two large gold bracelets for her wrists. You know who this was? You know who this gentleman was who took out a nose ring and a gold ring for her nose, which is a nose ring made of gold, right? And two large bracelets, gold bracelets for her wrists. This was the servant of Abraham. Because Abraham, and what's the name of Abraham's wife again? Oh, yeah, Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, they wanted a, hus uh, a wife for their son, Isaac. And so they sent the servant to go and look for a relative, a long-lost relative, right? So they sent the servant, and the servant uh, noticed uh, someone by the name of Rebecca. And she was working out the wells. And when he was observing her, the spirit led him to ask this lady, this young lady, concerning her relatives, right? And so when he found out that Rebecca was a relative, what did he do? He took out the gold ring, a nose ring. This was a gift from Abraham and Sarah to give to Rebecca, right? So this is like a prenuptial gift, a gold ring for her nose. And so if it's against the will of God to give a gold ring for her nose, why would it be used to be to be given to Rebecca? It was it was it Rachel or Rebecca? Rachel. Was it Rachel? No, it was Rebecca. It was Rebecca. Yeah. And so Rebecca in many ways represents the church or the kahal or the assembly. Isaac represents the son. This is why in a lot of uh, the literature in the Old Testament, Rebecca symbolizes in a way the kahal or the assembly. The assembly is to be given a gold nose ring. And so the nose ring was not something that's frowned against by Yahuwah our God. And in fact, according to Yahuwah himself, what is one standard of beauty that was practiced during the days of Israel. In the book of Ezekiel 16, 11 to 14, I gave you lovely jewelry. I want to pause there for a while. This is Yahuwah God who is likening Jerusalem to a woman. And Yahuwah God likening Jerusalem to his wife. He says, I gave you lovely jewelry, bracelets, beautiful necklaces, a ring for your nose earrings for your ears and a lovely crown for your head. And so you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were made of fine linen and were beautifully embroidered. You ate the finest foods, choice flour, honey, and olive oil, and became more beautiful than ever. You looked like a queen, so you were. Your fame soon spread throughout the world because of your beauty. I dressed you in my splendor and perfected your beauty, says the sovereign Yahuwah. And so here's Yahuwah God. And he tells us about the standard of beauty during those days. 
And Yahuwah God even says, I dressed you in my splendor and perfected your beauty, says sovereign Yahuwah. And one of the ways that Yahuwah God dressed or wants to dress his wife, Jerusalem, right? What did he say? I put a, I gave you lovely jewelry, bracelets, necklaces, and a ring for your nose. And so a ring for the nose was an approved standard of beauty by Yahuwah God himself. So I don't see anything wrong with having a nose ring. We are free to have a nose ring if we want. However, and this is a big however, just in case, Brother Matthew, you want to get a nose ring. <laughs> oh, what do we need to consider? Yes, we are free to put on a nose ring, but this is the principle we need to apply in our life all the time. Okay, what is that? In the book of Corinthians 10, 23, 24, you say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. And so because you decide to wear a nose ring, it ruins your work as a witness for Yahuwah and Yahushua. It's not a good idea to put on that nose ring. What do you think? Right? However, during this, during you know, our culture, at least in the United States, or at least here in California, it's become a norm for people to have nose rings. However, if it becomes a stumbling block, Bible says, yes, you are free to do that. But just because you're free to do that doesn't mean it's good and beneficial. And so we need to constantly always think about our effect on other people. A lot of people nowadays say, you know, I don't care about what others think. The Bible tells us we should care about what others think. Thing because we don't want to be a stumbling block for them so that we can better serve as witnesses for Yahuwah and Yahushua. What else does Apostle Paul tell us if there are those who want to wear a nose ring or some kind of body piercing? The book of Corinthians 6, you say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. And so we need to always think, OK, I'm allowed to do this. I'm free to do that. But is it beneficial? Is it good? What is beneficial? What is good if we're able to honor God because of that? Right. If we're able to glorify God. Because of that. So everything we do, it must be to honor God, glorify God, and also to be a good witness to our fellow human beings. And so if a person wants to get a nose ring or body piercing, what must we always understand? In the book of Proverbs 16.2, people may be pure in their own eyes, but Yahuwah examines their motives. So we need to ask ourselves, what is my motivation? Why do I want to get a nose ring? Because if our motive is not good and right, then we should not get that nose ring. We should not get that body piercing. And so according to the Holy Bible, what should be our purpose in doing anything? In Colossians, it says, for you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. You see, when we were baptized, 
we died to this life. We were united in death with who? Yahusha. And so when we, were, when we were raised back to life, we live our life, not for this life, not for the world, but for Yahusha. In other words, we get a new identity. Our identity is who? Yahusha. And so if you want to get a nose ring, so you can identify with a subculture that popularizes nose rings, then that's not a good motivation. Because our identity is who? Yahusha, our king. What else? Uh, could be another way or another motivation for some, uh, which is why they want to get a nose ring. The book of Timothy 2, 9 to 10, Apostle Paul says, and I want women to be modest in their appearance. I want to pause it for a while. What does modest mean? It doesn't attract what? Attention, right? Apostle Paul says, I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or, or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. And so if our motivation to put on a nose ring is so that we can draw attention to ourselves, right? We want to make a statement. That's not a good motivation. In fact, the Bible says when we meet together for worship, the women should be modest in their appearance, which is why it boggles the mind when we have special occasions, right? There are some women who, instead of really preparing internally, they're thinking about, what am I going to wear? What am I going to wear for this special occasion? And so they go all out. They spend a lot of money to buy a new outfit. I want people to see me with my new outfit for this special worship service occasion. Apostle Paul says, no, you should not do that. Do not try to be attractive by putting on expensive clothing and expensive jewelry. The best way to be attractive is by what? The good things that you do. And so what should be our concern? Ask people of God, especially the women. First Peter 3, 3 to 4, don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourself yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. And so what is, if, if we're preparing for a special occasion, for example, our Thanksgiving, and we're honoring Yahuwah Day this coming Saturday, right? If we were gathering together, how can we best prepare ourselves for that? Is it by making sure we got the best looking suit, the best looking dress, that will cause people to say, wow, that will cause people to, to see you in amazement, outward beauty, the Bible says, is always deceptive. The Bible says there's something that's way better than outward beauty. What is that? It's the beauty that comes from within. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. This is what is precious to our almighty God. This is why in preparation for our special day, we need to prepare ourselves by our inward beauty, a gentle and quiet spirit, okay? All right, let's go to our next question. 
First Peter 3.8. When I looked up First Peter 3.8, it's actually 2 Corinthians 13.11. So I put that in the parentheses. Okay, it's not it's not First Peter 3.8. The, the, the person asking the question got the passage wrong because it says this, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Philippians 2.2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Bro, yung two verses na yun ay tungkol sa unity of mind. The two verses is about unity of, of mind. The opinion, an opinion is a manifestation of the mind. And so unity through voting is part of what is required from those who are in the body of Christ. Uh, the, the messenger and that's not his brother. EGM is, oh no, Natugo, brother Felix Manalo, and brother Iranji Manalo taught that we should have unity in voting. Okay. And so, according to the question, 2 Corinthians 13 11 and Philippians 2 2 can be applied to be for unity in voting. Is that true? Let's go ahead and take a look at 2 Corinthians 13 11. Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Affection, listen to my appeal, be of one mind, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. And so Apostle Paul indeed says, be of one mind. However, we need to be careful and ask ourselves, does being of one mind apply to being united in voting? What was Apostle Paul um, trying to encourage and instruct the early Yahushans to do, the followers of Yahushua, in his letter, when he said, be of one mind. In what should they be of one mind? This is why we need to always check the chapter of the scriptures. We read verse 11. Let's read 7 to 8. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not that people will see that we have stood uh, the test, but that you will do what is right even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. And so in what sense must we have one mind? We must be one or united in doing what is right, not in doing what is wrong. This is why unity by itself is not good, because it depends on what you're being united in or united at. Do you get the point? Because there are people who cry out unity, unity, unity. We need to preserve unity. It depends on what you're being united in. Apostle Paul says, be of one mind. Yes, be united, but be united in doing what is right, not in doing what is wrong. How can we know what is right? How can we know what is wrong? By consulting with the truth that is recorded in scriptures. What is the warning of the Bible when it comes to preserving unity when what they're uniting to do is wrong? In the book of Exodus 23 verse 2, do not follow the majority when they do wrong or when they give testimony that perverts justice. So when there's a majority, we can say that they are united, right? The majority are united. However, if what they're doing is wrong, the majority are of one mind in doing what is wrong. Is that still good in the eyes of God? No. This is why the Bible says, do not follow the majority 
when they do wrong. Do not be united when what they're doing is wrong. Why is this so important? Why is unity in doing what is wrong so wrong? The book of Jeremiah 52931. But I, Yahuwah, will punish them for these things. I will take revenge on this nation. A terrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. Prophets speak nothing but lies. Priests rule as the prophets command, and my people offer no objections. But what will they do when it all comes to an end? The people of Israel, who was judged by Yahuwah, who came to a terrible end, were they united? Yes or no? Yes, but they were not united in doing what is right. And what did they unite in? Prophets speak nothing but lies. All the prophets were united. They were one in that lie. The priests rule as the prophets command. The priests were one with the prophets. And here's the astonishing thing. The whole nation, the people offered no objections. Why? Because of the name of unity. Let us be united, right? All of us be united with the prophets and the priests. The people were united. And so they were fully one of one mind. But the problem is they were one mind. They were united in doing what is wrong, not in doing what is right. And this is why in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Apostle Paul emphasized, make sure you're of one mind in doing what is right. And so that's 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Philippians 2, 2. Let's go read Philippians 2 to fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. And so Apostle Paul several times, twice, Philippians 2 to uh, mentions one uh, mind, right? Be like-minded, be of one mind. Now, was Apostle Paul referring to election, being one in voting, when he said be of one mind? And being like-minded, no way, because they were not even practicing the right of suffrage back then. They were not voting back then. It was just not about voting or election. So when he said, be like-minded, have one mind, what was he referring to? Again, you have to check the chapter. Look always at the chapter. Do not take the verse out of context. And so let's read. We read Philippians 2.2. 2. Apostle Paul says, be like-minded and be of one mind, right? What does that mean? That we are like-minded or be of one mind. Philippians 2, 3 to 8. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Yahushua, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so when Apostle Paul says, be like-minded, be of one mind, what does that mean? It means to have the same mind as whose mind? Mind of Yahushua, because it's it can be a scary thing, brethren. When you're going to use Philippians 2.2, 2, be of one mind, and you're going to apply that to some individual here on earth. Be one with this individual. When you do that, can we guarantee that individual is always going to do the will of God? No. 
But who is always going to do the will of God? Yahushua, right? This is why when Apostle Paul was exhorting us to be of one mind, to have one mind, it is to possess the mind of who? Yahushua. That's why if you read verse 5, that's what it means. Not being one-minded in voting, but let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, Yahushua. And what was the mind of Yahushua? Lowliness of mind, humility, right? Apostle Paul says, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others than himself. Consider the mind of Yahushua. Although he had the form of God, he humbled himself. That's the mind that we must possess, humility. Always thinking about the other person, not controlling the other person, but always thinking about the other person. That's the one mind that we must possess. And why is Apostle Paul teaching the early Yahushans to have this one mind of humility and meekness? What was his purpose? What did he want to achieve with that one mind that was shown by Yahushua? Philippians still, 2, 1 to 2. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same Love, being of one accord, of one mind. And so the purpose of Apostle Paul, why he wrote Philippians 2, 1 to 2, was to convince the brethren to have one mind, meaning to be humble and meek, so they can practice the same love for one another. It's not so that they'll be one in casting a vote. No, no. It's about being one in humility and meekness to practice the love that Yahusha practiced together with us. Because true love has the foundation of humility and meekness. Always thinking about the other person. So that's the unity that was spoken of. Okay. All right. Let's go to the next question. Some say Yahusha was hanged in the tree. And not in the cross. Is this true? The question about Acts 5.30. Let's look at Acts 5.30. The God of our fathers raised Yahushua from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. And this is actually not the only passage where you can read hanging on a tree. You have that in other passages in Galatians, for example. In Acts, you find Yahushua hanging on a tree. And so there are some who think and believe that Yahushua was not crucified. Instead, he died by hanging, right? Do you see a picture of Yahushua hanging on a tree? Have you seen a picture of a man hanging on a tree? And for them, the idea is, is a tree with leaves, right? Tree with leaves and fruit, and Yahushua is hanging on that tree. However, according to scriptures, how did Yahushua die? Did he die by being hanged by the neck on a tree? Is that how he died? Matthew 27 32 to 40, as they were going out, they met a man from Syria named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. So he was carrying a cross. Was he carrying a tree? He was carrying a cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Yahushua wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. How did they kill him? Did they hang him on the neck? No, they crucified him. 
and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Yahusha, the king of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. So how did Yahusha die? Was it by being hung on the cross or by crucifixion? By crucifixion. This is why at the resurrection, Yahushua showed what? The, the, the prints of the nails on his hands and on his feet. And also the pierce at his, the, the piercing at his side. And so he died not by being hung, but by crucifixion. And when we look at the Greek word for cross that is mentioned there, what word is used? It is saturo, stauros. Greek word is stauros, which means a cross, a well-known instrument of most cruel and ignominious punishment. Okay, so that was the Greek word used. Now, when the word tree is used, like the tree that has fruit and leaves, likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. The, the, the Greek word for tree there is dendron, okay, tree, dendron. So when it comes to the word tree, as in our understanding of the word tree, common, normal understanding of the word tree, we see a tree as having a trunk, branches, leaves, fruit, right? When that tree is what we have in mind, the Greek word is dendron. When in Acts 5.30, it says, the God of our fathers raised Yahushua from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. What was the Greek word used there for tree? Was it dendron? It was not. In fact, it was Zylon. Tree, the Greek word used in Acts 5.30, translated in English as tree, is the Greek word G3586, Zylon. What does that mean? How was it used in the Bible? Well, it says wood. That which is made of wood as a beam from which anyone is suspended. A gibbet, a cross. This is why other translations of Acts 5.30 says... Then God of our ancestors raised Yahushua from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Because the word for Greek is not the word used for tree that has leaves. It is for a wooden instrument. It is a cross, a wooden instrument. Yes. But why do we find in scripture that phrase hung on a cross? Why do we see it again and again? It's because it has become an idiom. Hung, hanging on a cross, hanging on a tree has become an idiom. Where did this idiom come from? In the book of Deuteronomy 21, 22, 23, if a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, that's where the idiom comes, comes from. You must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land Yahuwah your God is giving you as an inheritance. So this idiom that was used by the Jews in the New Testament came from Deuteronomy 21, 22, 23, hanging on a tree. Why was it used to apply to Yahusha? Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a Tree. And so Apostle Paul uses the idiom that was found in Deuteronomy 
and applies it to Yahushua because he became a curse for us when he died on the cross. This is why you find sometimes in scriptures, Apostle Paul uh, telling the Jews that Yahushua was hung on a tree, not because he died by hanging on a tree with leaves, but because he is alluding to the prof- to a prophetic uh, messianic prophecy about what would happen to Yahushua. And we're going to talk more about that in our BHP this coming Thursday. Curses everyone who's hung on a tree. Okay. All right. Let's go to our next question. If the first group, Israel nation, is being restored, Paul, and third group, us, is being restored too. How about the second group, Paul? Are they being restored in Paul? So the question is, apparently the, in his, uh, his question is the first group, Israel as a nation. And we're going to correct uh, a lot of the assumptions made in the question because the assumption is the first group is Israel as a nation, which is not true. Is being restored. And the third group, us, being restored. How about the second group? Are they being restored uh, then both? Well, so that we can get a background on this question, let's go ahead and turn to the book of Acts 2.39. For the promise is to you, first group, and to your children, second group, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And so here's Apostle Peter when he is disclosing to his audience on the day of Pentecost. The plan of Yahuwah God concerning the work of his spirit. What does he say? He says the promise of the people who will receive the spirit consists of the promises to you and to your children. And then from those who are afar off. And so there's this disjointedness between the first two groups and the third group. Because the third group has the distinction of being afar off. Afar off, meaning in place and time. As many as the Lord our God will call so who are they those who the, who are the three groups who are to be called in the book of corinthians 1 9 god is to be trusted the god who called you to have fellowship with the son yahusha christ our lord and so who did who did apostle peter refer to as the three groups who are to be called as many as yahuwah god will call they are the ones who are called to have fellowship with yahusha not Israel as a nation, but specifically those who are called to have fellowship with Yahusha, right? The early, the Yahushans, the Yahushaim, the son, those who are called to have to be in his assembly, his kahal, are those who are mentioned in the passage. Well, who are the first two groups who were called? Romans 9, 24, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, the first group to be called were the Jews, but not the Jews as a nation. Because remember, the Jews as a nation, what did they do to Yahushua? They killed him. They crucified him, right? And so the Jews who were called were the first fruits from Israel. They were called uh, to belong or to have fellowship with Yahushua. And also the Gentiles. What do we mean by Gentiles? They're not Jews. And so in the first century, salvation through Yahushua was given or opened first to the Jewish people, but also to the rest of humanity. So when we look again at Acts 2.39, for the promises to you, that is the first fruits of the Jewish people, not the whole Jewish nation. And to your children, those who were begotten by preaching of the gospel, the Gentiles, and to all who are afar off. And the question is, 
the second group, the Gentiles in the first century. When will they be restored? Brothers and sisters, the first two groups were called when? In the first century. The first two groups are distinct from the last or third group. Because the last or third group will come from afar off. When we say afar off, what does that mean? In the Ryu translation of the Bible, it means a far off place and a far off time. Why is there another group in a far off place and time? Because we know what happened to the first century assembly of Yahushua. It fell by means of apostasy. This is why it, it, it's when we say, when will the second group be restored? It was being restored by the third group. The third group represents the restoration of the first two groups. God is always working in the work of restoration. After this is complete, God's work of bringing people to Yahusha, the Gentiles primarily, right? What will happen next? Romans 11, 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. So Yahuwah's plan for salvation is for Israel and also for the assembly of Yahusha, right? God is first working on the assembly of Yahusha. After the full number of Gentiles has come in, then he's going to focus on Israel as a nation. Okay, that's why the second group was already restored in the third group. The third group is in the process of restoration. It went through the fire and it's being refined as we speak today. Okay, all right, let's look at another question. Our last question. Pakitanong kay Brother D kung tama ang video na gumamit ng references. This was the video that we were trying to test earlier today. But we couldn't bring it to you. But nevertheless, you can look at the info. Pakitanong kay Brother D kung tama ang video na gumamit din ng references na A lang ang vowel sa ancient Hebrew language dahil lumalabas ng banana pangalan ni Abba ay Yahawa. Can you ask Brother D, this is the English translation of the video, which also used references, is correct in saying that the only vowel in the ancient Hebrew language is Ah, which would mean that the name of Abba is Yahawa. Wow. And so I went and watched the video. I was going to show the video to you, but it'll take too long. And this is the uh, video. Um, I mean, we're not here to attack anyone or anything like that. I highly respect uh, this brother. He's full of wisdom. Um, the tribe of Judah teachings. He has a Facebook following, a Facebook page. And one of his Facebook um, shows or programs or videos was this specific one, the name of God in the ancient Hebrew. So he was primarily primarily focusing on the ancient Hebrew, okay? And according to his presentation, um, what is his belief about the ancient Hebrew, especially as it was written in the Holy Scriptures originally by Moses and, and thereafter? Well, he says, Proto-Hebrew had a single vowel, okay? That's what he writes. Proto-Hebrew had a single vowel. When we say Proto-Hebrew, what does that mean? Paleo-Hebrew or ancient Hebrew. So Proto-Hebrew is what, what, what Hebrew was before the Hebrew that we have today. 
Okay, so Proto-Hebrew had a single vowel. Okay, what do we need to understand about Hebrew, the Hebrew, the language in general? It has 22 consonants. It's all consonants with no vowel, right? So all consonants with no vowel. According to him, it had a single vowel. And so how would, I mean, how do you, how can you communicate with a language that only has consonants but no vowels? How do you do that? It's going to be hard to do, right? Can you communicate with a language, with an alphabet? Can you communicate with an alphabet that only has consonants but has no vowels? That's impossible to do, right, phonetically, because to form words, you need to have vowels. Am I right? Without vowels, the alphabet is useless. But with vowels, oh boy, you can come up with nice words. So the vowel is the, the vowels basically is the heartbeat of the alphabet. Without the vowels, you don't get any words, right? And so vowels are important. But ancient Hebrew and Hebrew in itself, it has no vowels. It's all consonants. But uh, before we get to that, uh, he, sa he says here, proto-Hebrew had a single vowel. And what was that single vowel? To omit the vowel is odd unless vocalization was unessential or un un unambiguous. He says, proto-Hebrew was unambiguous, the language had a single vowel, ah, which later evolved into other vowels according to syntactical accent. So the way the ancients communicated with an alphabet of consonants is that there's an oral tradition of how to add certain vowels, okay? This is how they started, put, having an oral tradition, put in the vowels. It's one of the mysteries of languages. But according to this person, um, he says the, pro the Proto-Hebrew alphabet had the consonants and a single vowel, which is the a, like how you have a, ba, ka, da, right? And so every letter has automatically that single vowel, a. And so when you apply this idea of ancient Hebrew having one vowel, then it would be easy to decipher the name of God, right? Because you have the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H. All you need to do is apply the vowels. Well, you can't go wrong because you only have how many? One, which is what? A. And so put in the A's and you get Yahawa, right? And so the name of God is Yahawa because there was only one vowel, Yah Yahawa, is the, the name of God because only one vowel. However, now I was curious, I mean, where, because what he said, his premise, for this to work, the premise has to be true. And the premise is a big one. Did you catch it? Yeah. How big it is? What is that premise? Yeah. Premise is Proto-Hebrew had a single vowel. Is that true? And so where did he get this from? And when you look up, that's where he got it from, from Vadim Cherny.org. So I went to check the website, vadimcherny.org. This is the website. Uh, we have someone, I guess that's Vadim Cherny. And this is, he has certain articles there and essays. When you click on the essays and articles, this is what he says about himself. I'm an amateur. Hebrew grammar is my hobby. If that sounds superficial, the Masoretes were also amateurs by the modern academic standards. They traded beans. Certainly not everything written here is correct. 
Some ideas are only sketched, but I do offer a new understanding of Hebrew as a mathematically precise descriptory system. And one of his articles is Proto-Hebrew had a single vowel. This is what we read earlier that was referenced by the one who created the video, um, suggesting that the name of God is Yahawah. Now, let's go and understand the language of Hebrew. Briefly, let's look at the history of the Hebrew language. And to do that, we'll go to this website called Hebrew for Christians. It started out long ago. I believe, by the way, I believe that the original language was Hebrew. You know why? Because when you look at the names, Adam, Seth, Methuselah, Noah, it all had Hebrew meanings. They were all Hebrew names. And so before the Tower of Babel, there was only one language, and that was Hebrew. And there are modern discoveries today that show that the oldest language is, in fact, Hebrew. So I believe Hebrew is the original language. So what I'm going to go through is what people have discovered concerning the evolution of Hebrew as a language. Okay, From the earliest times, the proto-Canaanite pictographs, because keep in mind, Moses did not, uh, Moses and his heritage, Moses and his people did not originally come from Egypt. Where did they come from? Canaan, right? And so when we talk about proto-Canaanite pictographs, this is what was possibly used during the days of Abraham or when writing was available. Like other ancient writing systems, the Hebrew alphabet originally was written using a pictographic or cuneiform-like script. And you can even see, look at hey, You see hey? You see hey here? There's uh, the Aleph. You see the Yod? You see the Yod? And what else do you see there? Well, that's uh, the pictographic um, alphabet of Hebrew. And so afterwards, what developed? The Phoenician script. The Phoenician alphabet developed from the Proto-Canaanite alphabet, which was created sometime between the 18th and 17th centuries BC. So probably during the, the days of Abraham. Okay. And so when you look at the uh, Yod, where's the Yod? Got to be Yod there somewhere. Ah, doesn't the Yod look familiar? Right? How about the hay? Where's the hay? Doesn't the hay look familiar? Look at the wow. Doesn't the wow look familiar? Mm -hmm. So Phoenician script during the days of uh, probably Abraham, 18th and 17th centuries, looked very familiar with what we're using now, Paleo-Hebrew, right? So after the Phoenician script, what developed? Okay, the Proto-Hebrew script. Remember that? Proto-Hebrew script. This is also called Early Aramaic script. The key extant example is the Moabite stone. This was Hebrew Ketav Ivri, used by the Jewish nation up to the Babylonian exile, or according to Orthodox Jews, until the exodus from Egypt. At the end of the 6th century BC, Ketav Ivri was replaced by the Hebrew square script Ketav Merubah. That's the script that we're familiar with, right? Look at the Yod, the He, the Wow, and the He. That is Paleo-Hebrew, the Proto-Hebrew script. According to the video, the one who suggested the name of God is Yahawah, 
there's only one vowel, right? But look, when we look at the note, Ketav Ivri was essentially the Phoenician alphabet that added semantic meaning through the novel use of dual purpose vowel letters. This script was used during in the first temple period, though it was also used as a symbol of nationalistic revival in the second temple period, a modified version of the scripts American is still extant today. Okay, so this is basically Paleo-Hebrew. We believe that when Moses wrote the Bible, it was with this script, the Proto-Hebrew script. And according to scholars, did they have use of vowels? Yes, there are certain letters that act not just as a consonant, but also as a vowel. This is why even for ancient Hebrew, Proto-Hebrew or Paleo-Hebrew, there were letters that represented vowels. This is why they developed what is called the matrix lexionis or the vowel letter system. In our alphabet, there are specific letters that are vowels, right? A, E, I, O, U, and sometimes Y, right? That's the matrix, this is, that's our alphabet. But in the Hebrew alphabet, you have the consonants, but some of those consonants also acted as vowels. We'll learn more about that later on. But after the Proto-Hebrew, what developed next? Classic Hebrew script. After the Babylonian captivity, Ketav Ashuri was adopted by the Jews under the leadership of Ezra the scribe and called Leshon HaKodesh, the holy language. This was done probably to distance themselves from Samaritanism. The Aramaic square characters was chosen as the official script for the Torah scrolls in the 5th century BC. Okay, so there was a transition from the Proto-Hebrew, Paleo-Hebrew, to classic Hebrew script. This is like where we get modern Hebrew from, okay? So when Yahusha was here, this is what they were practicing, this script. However, we know what happened to the Jews shortly after Yahusha went to heaven, right? What happened to the Jews? They were dispersed. When they were dispersed, what happened to their language? How are they able to preserve the pronunciation, the oral tradition of providing the vowels to their alphabet? Well, it became a big problem until eventually they introduced the Nikodat around 1000 AD. This was like a thousand years after Yahusha went to heaven. A group of Jewish scribes called Masorites, the Masoretes, developed a system of dots and dashes called Nikodat that were placed above and below the letters to represent all the vowel sounds. These inserted vowels most likely provide us the pronunciation of Hebrew at that time. Below is the Hebrew text of Genesis 1.1 written with the Aramaic alphabet. So to be able to pronounce and come up with words using the Hebrew modern alphabet today, what they provide you with are dots. The dots determine the vowels, but that was not the case long ago. Long ago, it was the letters that provided the vowels, okay? And so according to ancienthebrew.org, this system of putting dots that will indicate the sound of the words, is that reliable? Does it represent what it was during the days of Moses? As I mentioned previously, the ancient pronunciation of Hebrew may have been lost to us over time, but it can be assumed 
that the vowel sounds inserted into the text provide us the pronunciation of Hebrew at that time, 1000 AD. But the question is, is the traditional pronunciation of 1000 AD the same as it was in 1000 BC? Unfortunately, there's no way to answer this question. And so we can see that the, there's an evolution of the language, right? From Proto-Hebrew, Proto it was changed after the Babylonian exile to modern script, and then further changed by the introduction of the Nikudat. And so there was no purity in the language. However, something interesting in the Bible is mentioned in Zephaniah 3.9. For then, I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of Yahuwah to serve him with one accord. And so according to this prophecy, for us to be able to call on the name of Yahuwah, we need to have the language as close as possible to its pure form with pure vowels and pure consonants without any mixture for pay from pagan cultures, right? This is why we want to go back to Proto-Hebrew and look at how it uses the vowel letters, the matrix lecciones. According to BibleScripture.net, vowels in Masoretic Hebrew scripture are a combination of the historically long vowels A, Wow, and Yod, and the Masoretic or Tiberian vowel points. I want to pause it for a while. Do you see something very striking here? According to um, BibleScriptures.net, the Hebrew scripture really only needs three vowels. And they're provided by He, Wow, and Yod. Does that sound familiar? Yes. Those are the letters that form whose name? Yahuwah, right? Hey, wow, and yod. How do you pronounce yod? E. How about wow? U. How about hey? Ah. As a matter of fact, a used to be ah. So it's yod, e. Wow, u. Hey, ah. And so I would surmise that we don't even need a Masoretic or Tiberian vowel points. All we need is the He, the Wow, and the Yod. The letters have comprised the name of Abba so that we can put life in the alphabet of Hebrew. Isn't that beautiful? Right? This is why according to Jesenius, if you were to look for a reliable source concerning vowels of Semitic languages and ancient Hebrew, it would be Jesenius. He is uh, the source of all things Hebrew. He wrote a book called Jesenius Hebrew Grammar. This is everyone who studies Hebrew. This is a must course. And this is what he says. The original vowels, the pure vowels, original in Hebrew, as in the, the other Semitic tongues, are a, e, and u, e, and o, always arise from an obscuring or contraction of these three pure sounds. Remember what the Bible says. We need to go back to its pure form to be able to get a certainty as far as the pronunciation 
pronunciation of the name of gum. What are these pure vowel sounds? A, E, and U. What is A? The hey. What is E? That is the yod. What is U? That is the wow. Isn't that amazing? It's so amazing because you know what that means? It means that the very vowels that supply the heartbeat so that an alphabet with consonants can even function and produce words, you have to add in the letters of Yahuwah's name. It's like the name of Yahuwah breathes life into the alphabet of Hebrew. This is why if we were to get Yahuwah's name in Pelo Hebrew, if we were to use the name of Yahuwah, its letters, and use them as vowels, how would that sound? For example, when you look at the Yod, what is the sound of Yod? E. What is the sound of uh, Hey? Ah. How about Wow? Ooh. How about the uh, hey, ah? If we are to sound it off just using the vowels, not as consonants, but as vowels, how does it sound? Yaua, yaua, yaua. Isn't that amazing? Even if we are to say that the tetragrammaton are four vowels, not four consonants. But for vowels, it produces the sound of his name, Yahuwah. <laughs> if it's for consonants, it still produces by the matrix lecciones the sound of his name, Yahuwah. Isn't that amazing? The beauty in the name of Yahuwah tells us that even when it comes to the words that can come out of an alphabet, it's very genesis is the breath breathing the very name of who? Yahuwah. Doesn't that give you chills? Even if we say it's vowels, because when you think of vowels, these are letters that you need to put breath in, right? Because without breath, you cannot make a vowel. And so we can say the name of Yahuwah can be composed of four vowels. Pronounce Yahuwah. Yahuwah. That is the name. That is, by definition, the cause of all things. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. The cause of all things is Yahuwah. That's what it means. He's the cause of all things. And it turns out his name is the cause of all the words from the Hebrew alphabet. <laughs> Because it supplies what? The matrix lecciones. How beautiful, how beautiful indeed is the name of Abba, Yahuwah, our God. That is our lesson, brethren. Let us stand and we shall pray together. Everlasting Father, yes. Yahuwah, our God, yes. as we meditate upon your name, yes. indeed, it is simply beautiful, Amen. simply wonderful. Yes. Your name, which means I am who I am, because it is you who has brought all things to existence. Yes. And no one caused you to exist. Amen. We can see the wonderful ways 
by which your name, yes. including the letters of your name, yes. provides life to a dead alphabet. Amen. Because it is wonderful, your name, Amen. and we glorify you forever. Amen. Father, please bless each and every one of us. Yes. Help us to grow in our knowledge and understanding of yes. your work. Help us to perfect and refine our services that you might be blessed and glorified. Amen. Yahushua, our King, thank yes. you so much for you are our chief shepherd. Help us in our work. Help us in the services we render. Yes. Always guide us with your help through the spirit that you provide. May you help us to understand your will and the will of Abba yes. so that we can be completely one of one mind with you and with Abba Amen. to carry out the purposes and plans that he determined long ago. Amen. Father, bless your people here. Keep yes. us safe and heal us of our sicknesses yes. and strengthen and comfort each and every one of us. Amen. We ask and beg everything, Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahushua, our King. Amen. Amen.